Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. So I followed the ghost of a king with every step Hold on a minute before I let you get to this wonderful episode of Stories Are Soul Food. I have to tell you something. Some of you all who have been asking for video, well, your desires have been answered because this episode is now streaming on Canon Plus in video. So if you, for some reason, have wanted to see my face or Nate's face, you now can do that. Or if you've wanted to see how Nate wears his headphones, or I don't know what clothes he uh, records stories or soul food in, uh, you can now do that. MyCanonPlus.com. And of course, use code SASF99 after you create your free account. Enter that for a month of Stories or Soul Food and 99 cents. And of course, all the other things on Canon Plus. All right, I'll get out of your way and let you listen to the episode, because it's a doozy, as they say. Welcome to 78, everybody. Yeah. Welcome to Stories or Soul Food. I am Andy Wilson. That's Brian Cole. Yep. And Editor. you just heard Ghost of a King. Yeah. By David Radford. <laughs> we got our credits. And the Grey Havens. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. We're out. <laughs> yes, we're excited to be here. Whether we're not excited, you know, we've got dust that was kicked up over both last week and the weeks before episodes. Questions, thoughts, yeah. some follow-up requests. Right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think people don't like to hear unvarnished opinions, at least from the little bit of dust that I heard. Mm. And so I thought the solution is to provide more. More unvarnished, unvarnished opinions. opinions. <laughs> well, I brought my bag of unvarnished opinions today, so we're in we're in good shape. I don't think people realize how much fun it is to it's... be sitting here with a camera on you offering unvarnished opinions. So we yeah. ignore the camera. Right. Um, oh, oops. I brought a yeah. golf I brought a golf bag full of unvarnished opinions. Yeah. So we'll just pull them out one at a time. <laughs> what kind of unvarnished opinions are you talking about? Well, I mean, I, I, partly just, I think, last week's episode on the, the heroic feminine. What did I say this time? What did you say this time? No, I don't really. I don't really. We don't oh, that really... was a great episode. What could they possibly have to complain about that? Right. That was well thought. I mean, the only reasoned. failing would be if we I were... underpitched the episode, the article. And we if were... so, you can go read it yourself and find we out. We were calm, rational. Thoughtful. I mean, what measured. other? Where else could you get groans of pain? On a <laughs> I, did, I, I did do that. I did groan in pain repeatedly in the microphone. <laughs> this is fun. I also thought people just don't. Maybe understand. that's what people don't like. Yeah, groaning in pain. pain. Yeah. Well, that's just poor taste. <laughs> <laughs> I think people don't understand what it's like to work in publishing because in publishing it's a service. If you identify a bad idea and weed it out, then nobody, yeah. nobody wastes time on it. That's a big part of what pitch. Were, what were people disagreeing with? I think I think they. Is there want... anything specific we need to we need to stomp on? No, unless I pitched the article badly, but I don't think I did. The things I left out were things you would have hated even more. Yeah. <laughs> um. So there was no disagreement with anything said in the podcast. There was just general. They just think that there's more to it than we gave we gave uh, airplay to. Just that the the oh isn't the there fee- always? It was one podcast, right? Yeah. There you go. See, Nate's we can, a reasonable guy. We can happily, guy. happily concede that there's always more to it. We could have beaten that pinata for days. <laughs> Instead, we beat it for 40 minutes. <laughs> and we're on, you know, to a new episode. Uh, and, and I wanted to try something. If this doesn't work, it'll be funny anyway. But I wanted to see <laughs> something called Nate's Pitch Deck where you can make something better 
a pitch oh, that I gosh. found a pitch that I found on the wide interwebs. It's public. No one sent it to me. I don't know these people. Oh, great. Can you make this better? <laughs> <laughs> this is unvarnished opinions. I'm giving the people what they need, even if it's not what they want. <sighs> the, yeah. So like I said, I, I wasn't sent this. I don't know the people just pitch ideas and then maybe we can talk about what goes into a good pitch. That's right. been some of my favorite conversations that you've given me when we've discussed like, Hey, here's how you sell this idea. This idea, this angle won't work. So anyways, um, uh, you know, I thought this one sounded like it might have all the ingredients, but creative foster kid Beverly wants nothing more than to run away from her fatally dull small town home. In trying to make an escape plan, she gets caught in a dangerous town secret that threatens to keep her there forever. Mm. What is it missing? What does it need? Or is it pretty solid? Does it just depend on execution? What's the town secret? Well, see, I don't, I don't know. It's just a pitch. <laughs> no, it's not just a pitch. Yeah, you got to actually got to flesh it out. Got to know these things. So if you don't know the town secret, it, it could be a good town secret. So if it's a town secret of like. Let's let's say it's a town secret. They're covering up. Aliens. I love a good town secret. <laughs> it's so vague. Uh, but yeah, it's you know that it's meaningless. Yeah. But the fact is, all we know about the town secret is that, um, well, it's a dangerous one. That it keeps her there. She gets caught in a town secret. A town secret that's going to keep you in a physical location. Right. So that's. Does that feel like a bit of a dodge to you when you're writing it's a like pitch? A it's a tiger trap. Like there's literally a hole in the ground that she fell in <laughs> <laughs> and the sides are really slippery. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, there's always those places in a pitch where you have to be vague. Mm -hmm. You have to be you kind of wave your hand at it. Um, aspiring novelists tend to over specify. They tend to never become impressionistic when they're pitching. So okay. know, I don't, I don't want to like lean on specificity because people do that too much already um but you have to know where to leave it blank and you have to know that you're you are really are pitching the setup as opposed to the solution yeah uh, but you know it's okay that you tease it and people are interested in finding out from the pitch they're interested in finding the solution yeah they don't need to know the solution but so if it's like a solution that there's this you know like in the winter king that we've had with christine on here where there's like a plot to keep a secret from the town uh, that would be one kind of story. But if it's a pitch where, say, I don't know, she discovers an alien in her town. Are those like, how, so how would you? What I don't like initially is the setup of like, hey, here's a here's a girl in a boring place. Like, I'm OK, I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I'm, that's what happens when I'm in boring places is that it's, I'm, it's boring. Yeah. So you got to sell the location more. OK. Uh, the setup has to be better there's got to be more mythos to the actual context you know the, the world the setting uh, and so on you can have normalville but normalville has to go nuts in the pitch pretty quickly mm -hmm. and it can't just be here's a boring town but don't worry it has a secret and that secret is sticky mm. if you find out about it you might stay yeah it's like so <laughs> like yeah what is, okay is the secret that there's a bunch of gold i mean why would i be sad that she's staying if there's a bunch of gold, you know, like that she's staying gotcha. to try, she's trying to find the treasure. You know, like what, what is that? I'm, I'm working on a story right now around a town that has, uh, always had people go missing. So 
over its 130, 140 year history, there people have constantly gone missing. Mm. And there's, there's 14 statues in this town all over this tiny little town of a couple hundred people uh, going back to the first statue was like 1921 when it was erected. And there's 14 statues on crumbling pedestals that are badly cared for erected to the missing. Ooh, scary. And just, you know, pioneers, hunters, children, families, it just vanished without a trace in this town. Uh, so the locals resent the kind of weird tourism that shows up, you know, the occasional weirdo that shows up because they're, you know, yeah. have their theories, but there's obviously a, a mystery here. And so if your kids relocating to this town, like there's a, there's a weirdness to it to figure out uh, right away. You know, there's, there's something to try to solve. There's a puzzle to solve immediately. Uh, but I've kind of stacked, I've stacked layers of, uh, for my, for my protagonist, I have layers of issues there where my, Two brothers come into this town to help their grandmother move away. She's finally lost her house and it's going to county auction. Mm -hmm. So they're going to help her move out. Uh, they arrive unbeknownst to them as the uh, local pariahs. So they come in thinking they have a blank slate moving their grandmother out, but it turns out that their grandfather was the basically the campfire tale. He's like the worst. Oh, wow. And so nobody wants to see them, know them. And like they're just the worst because of what their grandfather's alleged to have done back in 1987. Uh, to like the one- There's a town this, secret. Like this is the town of the missing, <clears throat> yeah. but one family that didn't go missing uh, that was murdered in 87 was alleged to have been murdered by their grandfather. Gotcha. Who then went missing along with uh, the youngest daughter of this family. And so- Their little- the youngest child went missing. Okay, so their the whole sister. family was found murdered. Oh, of that family, I got you. And so their grandfather and the youngest child went missing, and the whole family was found murdered in '87. Okay, and so they show up like, "Hey, we're going to move grandma," and she's this bitter, angry woman who's just there, spitefully defiant of this mm. town because her husband is yeah. the one who allegedly did this. And so the the first you know people they meet, uh, they're kind of assessing are relatives of the murdered family um you know it's like they have they have this weird who their age you know yeah. the and they have this this bizarre old murder mystery along with an older identity mystery around the town to try to solve nice um so if, if you have that kind of town mystery that you're setting up and I'm, I'm still working on it there's characters i'm designing there's things i'm uh playing with mm -hmm. and so it's an entourage narrative around a bunch of kids um, and even following their adult parents who were kids back when this thing went down um, you know, like that's a generational thing that you try to you yeah. try to tease out there's a yeah. lot to explore there but you want to start with very normal kids you don't right. want to start with outlier kids you it's okay if you have kids who are outlier adjacent uh, but you don't want to have uh, really uh, on like on the bell curve, like outlier children. Gotcha. They want to be relatable. They want to be easily relatable and they're getting thrown into okay. or because thrust you can't into. pick up, you can't pick up someone who's yeah. far out from normal, I guess. Yeah. So you want, basically you want shoes that, that readers can step into pretty quickly. 
Gotcha. So uh, as far as the pitch elements go, they always give you the rules, you know, like got to get the character, got to get the setting, got to get the conflict and the hook. Like yeah. that's kind of like the pitch there, which sounds like what you've given us right there. Yeah. So you, um, basically, if you, if you have character and that character should be pretty easily described and, you know, one or two adjectives max, mm -hmm. um, then you get into place, uh, misdirection of place, personality of place. Yeah. Uh, and then you set up like as soon as you've had those things collide, then you're setting up the, the tension like, hey, look, it's a firework and I lit the fuse. Don't you want to watch what happens next? You're not telling the story in the pitch. Yeah. You know, it's like you you light the fuse and there it goes. So what have you seen? Maybe you can't tell us this. What have you What do people like about that pitch? Like an executive, if you're pitching that to an executive, what is the element of that? Or is it the whole thing? Like, where do you see them start to go? Oh, interesting. I love, I like that. Or have you not told us that part? <laughs> I've not told you that part. Okay. Nice. So, all right. So you all haven't heard the hook yet. Yeah. The hook is the high concept device. Um, so you think about cupboards, 100 cupboards is, uh, you know, you take a very, an overprotected timid boy is shipped off to live with his aunt and uncle and three female cousins in an old farmhouse in Kansas. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, it's like set up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you, you move into the discovery of 99 mismatched cupboard doors behind the plaster in his attic bedroom. Mm -hmm. Some receiving mail through some comes rain and earthworms. You know, it's like some just smells and through others deep foreboding and evil. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, okay. And one of the first things that happens is that when I pitched that back in the day, and when I pitched it to uh, film and TV execs, overwhelmingly people would say, where's the 100th cupboard? Because I would say, it's called 100 cupboards. Here's the pitch. He finds 99 cupboards uh -huh. in his attic wall. I'm like, oh, you know, you'll find out. Nice. You know, it's like, it's just yeah, like, okay. But the, the whole setup is there. Like, okay, timid kid. He's in this farmhouse. Yeah. He's relocated. Character he's in this setting, Kansas. Yeah, he's in yeah. this crazy farmhouse in Kansas, and he's got these, you know, very, very different female cousins mm. uh, from himself. Well, he's timid. He's normal. It's easy for anybody to relate to that kind of struggle. Yeah. Uh, and incidentally, this is why uh, it's easiest to write not true beta males, but borderline beta <laughs> uh, guys who aren't are meant to be alpha but are currently abdicating mm -hmm. so if you write uh alpha potential males in, yeah in protagonists that those are really the best yeah that's what leads. i found is because you can easily fall on that and this is both with friends and pitches but you fall off that edge into uh, you've just written a passive main character yeah and the one of those big advices is like, hey, you got to have them do something. Yeah, like they have to be the person who's going to do something. But if you write a character who is an alpha male mm -hmm. at page one, who's just not doing, there's, oh yeah, there's, yeah, 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 like already an active alpha male. There's no, there's no real trek or journey, right? And so they, it has to be kind of broken. There's got to be a brokenness in some way that's relatable, right? And so with. Uh, with cupboards, Henry's very much there where it's like, he's, you know, he's grass under a board in the yard. He's, we just yeah. don't even know. He's fully, Yellowed. he's fully beta. He's afraid and timid and lost. And his cousins are bold and interesting and smart. And he's got to grow into this. And it turns out that he's intended for 
far more. And we see that early. So you see that in, in prophecies and, and people knowing who he is through the cupboards and so on. We see that he's intended for far more. But, but you, want to, you want to have that character that is easily relatable for anybody reading the story to be thinking, I, I know what it is to be afraid or to be nervous. Like you, you can grab those flaws and easily relatable for male or female readers. Yeah. So that lead character is a unisex hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. Right, at, right out the gates. And then once you've earned that sympathy, they start to grow and mature and, and become the person they're supposed to be. And you want those secondary characters to be on journeys as well which is where frequently you have the favorite characters of the readership. So the readership will, gotcha. will locate favorite characters. Very rarely will be the protagonist. Oh, okay. And Interesting. That's, and that's so because that's where... do people make mistakes by trying to make the main character the favorite? Absolutely. Ad adding all the yeah. quirks and the weirdness yeah. to the main character? So you got you to think if you're... If we're going to play with a metaphor here, you got to think about... Um, if you're going to have a milkshake, a really great milkshake, it's, it's usually best to use vanilla mm. and, you know, just use that vanilla base and then you're going to add whatever. Okay. You know, it's like, you're going to add the flavoring, you know, like to that, but what is the base? Like, what is it that you're, okay. you're okay. working with? And so if you're talking to Harry Potter, it's like Hermione is really great and interesting, but she could never have carried it as a lead. Uh, gotcha. She just couldn't have, nobody would have, like the, the universal relatability of Harry would not have shown up for Hermione. And so the same thing's true in, in cupboards. You have a ton of people who are relating to Henrietta and, and love Henrietta or love Anastasia or love uh, right. as moms are reading it, love aunt Dottie or cracked up by uncle Frank or fat Frank or yeah. even Richard. I've got a, the, the number of people who tell me how much they love Zeke or love Richard or yeah. love Penelope or have named their kids uh, after side characters in hmm. the Coverage trilogy. Uh, like that's, you know. That's cool. That's awesome. It's great. Uh, but Henry is, doesn't become people's favorite character until the later books. Yeah. I mean, and he yeah. does eventually kind of grow there, but he doesn't, just, he doesn't start there and he can't start there. With Ashtown, Cyrus uh, Smith starts out as a much stronger character and his dysfunction is not weakness. Mm -hmm. his, his dysfunction is rebellion, surliness. He's more of an unbroken, right. uh, more of an unbroken horse than he is uh, afraid. You know, he's yeah. lost, he's, there's, there's a brokenness there, but he's not timid like Henry. He hasn't learned how to use his strengths where he yeah. needs to, I guess. And so you have a, a two-hander there with his sister and uh, himself. And so you, you, but you have a very different guy there. So he's an alpha male, but he is still alpha adjacent. He's not alpha functioning correctly. Right. You know, he's not I mean, not, I mean, a story about Rupert, Rupert wouldn't be the, no. Greaves wouldn't be the main character. No. And yet Rupert Greaves is overwhelmingly people's favorite, favorite character. character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, a, a book of tales of Rupert Greaves kicking bad guys' butts would be pretty <laughs> fun, but it wouldn't yeah. be a novel. But yeah. especially one of the things that people love about Rupert is the, the flashes back into the past when he was meeting uh, Cyrus's father. Like young Rupert is, is one that people are very, very fond of. Yeah. Uh, okay. So because that's where you actually see some of his own 
like okay like his own journey yeah like this glimpse of this kind of awkward kid um but it is anyway when you're starting out in a story you do want to give your protagonist handles and so with cyrus because he is such a you know volatile character i need he had to have a sister he had to have a sister right next to him and he had to have a sister who reacted to him the way readers would or at least a lot of the readers would okay. and so you have to basically you want to get to that reaction before the readers do so they can they can share it so can you explain how he would have been a bad or worse why would the story have worked worse without antigone it's almost impossible to say <laughs> being familiar with it to think about that the the ashtown without antigone well, that's but, and it really is kind of like saying if you're looking at a peanut butter cup, how did, how would the peanut butter be worse without the chocolate around or the chocolate without the peanut butter? It's like, well, <laughs> just wouldn't be. It just yeah, it's better together because you get to use them as counterpoints to each other. Mm. You get I get to reveal Cyrus's um, unbrokenness, you know, uncontrollableness uh, next to and in contrast to his sister, and I can show his like his fire you know, his loyalty to his sister and to his siblings. Yeah. Um, because he has them. You know, if right. I don't, if he doesn't have Antigone, he can't reveal that, that thing that makes people actually love him. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so even though he's being cantankerous, we see this loyalty and, and affection. Right. Um, You'd have to like manufacture some pretty serious save the cat moments with Cyrus by himself, sort of like a tough orphan on his own. I mean, that, that, uh, that yeah. sounds hard. Yeah. <laughs> And then on from Antigone's perspective, she looking at her brother enables, she enables girls to see him and process him uh, in the way that I would like them to. Yeah, it's like, gotcha. so like she's, she's the vehicle of relating to Cyrus that half the readership um, needs. Yeah. Gotcha. So the, um, and Cyrus is, in those stories, Cyrus, Cyrus is that lead character that is actually a lot of people's favorite. Um, and I think it's only because of Antigone. So mm -hmm. he, he could never be a so, favorite character for people without people looking at him through his sister's eyes as opposed to inhabiting him. It's actually when they're looking at him inhabiting the, the other lead that he's enabled to be a favorite character. When you're just in his own head, it's not. That's when people really like Antigone. When Cyrus is looking at Antigone, people really like Antigone. And when they're hmm. looking at hmm. Cyrus uh, from Antigone's perspective, that's when they can get a lot of affection there. Yeah. So is that a Frodo Sam thing? I mean, I guess, is that a similar dynamic there? Yeah, but with more diversity because it's across gender. And so writing that sibling affection and writing that. Uh, you know, right in their relationship, that brother sister relationship has been funny, but I, I definitely have, uh, had more conversations with, uh, girl readers who really, really like Cyrus <laughs> mm, <okay. laughs> than I ever have about Henry. You'll just say that I've never, yeah. I've never had a, a signing, you know, a, a book signing in a suburb of Chicago, uh, where girl after girl after girl is telling me how much they love Henry. Um, and yet I have had that experience with Cyrus. Okay. Funny. So I like, like it. It's like, okay. And it's funny also talking to, uh, older girls, uh, who are thinking and like trying to think like creators themselves. 
um, who have told me how much they really like Cyrus and why aren't guys actually like Cyrus uh, mm -hmm. has come up before. Uh, I tell them to make sure you don't dismiss guys who actually are like, because they, they are, they don't understand how filtered their perspective is and how much I've created sympathy like for him via a sister. So they're, right. they're reading a sister's perspective and seeing him and she has all this loyalty to him and, and feels protective of him. And yeah, he has all this loyalty for her and protective. He's feeling protective of her. Um, yeah, because he wouldn't be likable. No, you, for your average likable. No. If you bump into Cyrus, if you're a 14 year old girl, a 15 year old girl, and he's in your class. No, you're really annoying. No, you, you're just like, oh, I can't stand this guy. Yeah. Uh, but as a, as a lead living, uh, living his adventure in a, in a novel. Um, Very fun. When you're able to get outside of your own experience next to him as a classmate and able to perceive him from, from that point of view, then yeah, you see him very differently. And so, so I actually yeah, think yeah. a lot of guys are more like him than, than girls might think. And they just think, oh, guys are such idiots. <laughs> guys are such morons. Um, but uh, that's a masculinity episode for another time. Yeah, another time. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's anyway, this is all off of pitches and characters and, and all that kind of stuff. But when you're, when you're trying to create affection and sympathy for, uh, you know, for that lead, you really do, you really do have to think about the entire readership, uh, adult readers, young readers, male readers, female readers. Like if you're trying to write something that's there's, and there's nothing wrong with trying to write a, uh, a book for a niche readership. It's totally fine. Mm -hmm. um, no complaints there, but uh, just know that know when you're doing it, and don't scold the readership for not being flexible. Gotcha. Yeah, it's like if you're so if you're not writing for all four quadrants, don't expect all four quadrants to to love it. To love it. Uh, back to the soul food analogy. If you are uh, walking out a plate of food and you're setting it down in front of people in a restaurant. Do not scold the clientele. Like just, you don't want to scold your readership. Yeah. So but, yeah. don't like you should, you ought to like this. Like you really ought to don't scold them. Even if they ought to <laughs> like, right. Even if you're right and they're wrong uh, and they're broken because they watched too many Marvel movies, it just doesn't help. Don't, don't scold them. You know, try to serve up stuff that will eventually break down the resistance in different areas and ways and, and, and pull them in. But there's plenty of books that should be targeted for little girls and are written for girls and that's great. And there's no reason to be upset that boys aren't reading them. Mm. That's completely fine. Yeah. Okay, nice. Well, your, pit ep your, your episode of Screen Rant, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think the, uh, the other thing I wanted to cover was like something we, we hit a little bit in uh, the motivation episode. I don't remember which number it was. Yeah. Um, 76, 76 talking about motivation. Uh, I know we've oh, covered this before that. I know yeah. we've covered this before, but one of the things that came up to me in a number of different ways was, uh, this maybe should be its own episode, but we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll touch it here and we can follow up more Yeah, uh, if it needs to be its own, but and I've got questions if we want to do it, but also yeah. people should send in the questions. Yeah. Send, got. send questions. But, um, the old, the old lie, the old slippery lie of the artistic identity. And that one is uh, really dangerous. 
Because you actually didn't flatter the artistic identity even a lick. Is that yeah. where these questions are coming that's, from? That's where it came from. Because you said, hey, if you don't feel the fire, yeah, you know, then you know, make yourself feel the fire or stop writing. I You're mean, a joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a, it was, I thought it was a great episode. It's very helpful. So, <laughs> so one of the, one of the things that's like a post-romantic lie that has crept into Western civilization and I think it, I think it goes back before that. I think it's as old as Greek philosophy is, um, is, is the concept of the artist, uh, as, as such a deep, deep identity and plenty of people, um, feel as if they are called and they tried to, they tried to sanctify this calling of the artistic identity. And I might be a mom, but I'm called by this artistic identity. I, I have to use my artistic gifts because God gave them to me. And so I must like, I'm not being faithful if I don't use them. And the same goes for guys, you know, the same thing. Yeah. I'm an artiste, I'm an artiste. And so if I'm not being an artiste, then I am, uh, I'm somehow in some way failing my identity which I have now taken as a papal charter in the 1300s. So this is now a holy charter from the vicar of Christ on earth, mandating that I, I be an artiste at all costs. And I think being an artist is a lot more like being a plumber, um, being a, you know, somebody who carves wood uh, on pianos. Or if you really want to, really want to respect the craft like being a gardener okay you know it's like no you don't understand i'm really good at gardening hmm. you don't understand i i feel this urge to garden i really i have to ignore my i have to ignore my family i i have to bail on my relationships because i feel compelled to garden uh, <laughs> that like, doesn't fly quite the same. For some way. reason, we we see through that one, mm. um, and we see through it. You know, when guys say, "No, you don't understand. I'm just really good at fishing." <laughs> like it's, I feel called to fish. I Vi need or video games. That's yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel called to fish. I I have this thing that God has given me. If I'm not using my gifts for fishing, that God has given me, then I am failing. Uh, I think that's just so. What's the line there? Because joke. yeah, it's a joke, and it's this lie that we've told ourselves. Because yeah, there is a line. You have let's let us let us just hypothesize that you do in fact have artistic gifts. God gave them to you. Let's hypothesize that you actually are good at gardening. Like you really are. You're great. You've got a green thumb, mm -hmm. and you're really good at gardening, and you're good at gardening. And so you use that to suck at being a human. Ah, uh, there's the rub. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oops. <laughs> like we okay. all know you have other identities as well. You might have artistic gifts. You might have an ability with stories. You might have an ability with plumbing. You might have a, an ability with wood carving. You might be really good at carving a duck. Mm -hmm. You might be really good at, at uh, carving a piano leg. Like maybe you're great at it, uh, but you're called to be a great human first. 
So and you're not saying there's no such thing as vocation. Of course. You're just saying this is, we've sort of created. Stop like making a, this one special. Yeah. Like what, what, why is this such a special? So we thing? do that with ministry, right? That's the yeah, other Yeah, we one. do it with ministry too. We do, Where, it with, we do it with all sorts of things. We say, I'm just called to ministry, which means that, I mean, I think Jesus called out the Pharisees for doing that. You know, whatever I was going to give to my parents is given to God. Yeah. What is so special about, I mean, I love stories. I love wordcraft. I, you know, it's great. I'm all for it. We need more stories in the world. I like food. I like chefs. But if anybody, if anybody said, I'm really, really gifted with cooking and then became terrible at feeding their family because they were so focused on cooking for strangers, we would, you know, we would all look at that as tragic. Yeah. Like we, that would, that's an obvious tragedy. What about someone who does have that burning, but contractors, the other stuff contractors. Yeah. And when their own, their own roofs are leaking, when their own houses are in total disrepair, it's the same thing. You know, it's like, this is, this is an old, old problem. And this is a problem that exists across a lot of different vocations where people have a particular set of gifts. They have a particular calling. And so they follow that calling at the cost of, of aspects of their humanity and their identity that are more central. And that second half is where you're getting that dust up from at the cost yeah, of, at the cost of. So yeah, other things, if you are a woman and you are a mom, you are a wife and you have artistic gifts, what comes first? And you say, no, but I paint beautiful landscapes. That's why it's okay that I lead such an ugly life. Hmm. It's like, no, it's not. You actually have to leave a, a beautiful taste in the mouths of your children and your husband and your family first. Hmm. Like first, lead a beautiful life, then paint pretty pictures. I mean, it's just, it's that basic. Um, and I then universalize, I actually universalize storytelling because unlike painting, unlike gardening, unlike all these other examples I've used, every single human being is a storyteller. So those of us who actually type and write stories, we have this extra layer where we, we, we insert, you know, secondary, secondary storytelling below, but everybody lives narrative. Everybody lives it. Everybody, right. everybody lives it. Every second of every day, you are writing scenes and the clock goes and God says, Hey, how about another impromptu, you know, impromptu narrative all day. You don't get a script. I've given you guidelines for your character of how I want your character to behave. And I want, I've given guidelines of what I want your character's role to be in the world. Go, don't screw up. Right. Like just go write, go write every scene as you, as you write your scenes through trial, as you adapt, he's like, okay, here's tragedy. Here's trial. Here's comedy. Here's stress. Like go write your dialogue, write your relationships. And every single one of you, every single listener and every single novelist, every single writer, all of you are writing real stories. And then there's those of us who write fake ones. Like some of us write fake ones also. Additionally, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so some of us write fake stories too. All of us write real stories. Yeah. Those of us who want to write fake stories all too often live horrendous real ones. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of Oscar Wilde. You already mentioned the romantics, but that yeah. was kind of his shtick of, of like, no, art only is for art's sake. Yep. Art for art's sake. And then I guess uh, that lie is that you can only get transcendent through art. Yeah. Or, the, or that, that you're somehow a high, not that you can only do it, but this that you're a higher person for pursuing transcendence through art. Yeah. Um, so you can hit us with questions. If you have questions about this, we can talk it about talk about it in a, in further episodes, but everybody writes scenes. Everybody writes real stories. Everybody gets annoyed in traffic, angry, and they decide to write a scene with an angry character and it's real and it sits there <laughs> forever in the annals of time. You have just written that in the wet concrete of history and then God cures it right after you leave and it's now written that way forever with no editing, with no rewrites, yeah. Nothing. You just did it. There Brian's you go. Brian's road rage. Yeah. Brian's road rage. <laughs> yeah. It just, there you go. And so all of you, every mom, every dad, every kid writes scenes. We all are writers. We all are storytellers because God has given us uh, rules for our ad libbing rules for our impromptu writing. Uh, and he's given us no ability to do any editing and it's all real life that he lets us write. He gives us this freedom to go write real life. And then those of us who have the opportunity to write fake lives, yeah. you know, like yeah. we, we do fake stories, which I love. I love fiction. You know, we write this stuff all the time. I talk to dads, I talk to moms who are like, but I have this, how do I use my gifts? You know, because all this real life storytelling is getting in the way of my fake life storytelling. Like, okay, well, that's, that is the thing you need to understand and get right first. Understand that if you've written ugly scenes all day with your kids and with your husband, then don't even like, don't even sit down at the keyboard, you dummy. Like it just, yeah. what's the point? Get, get your real life writing squared away before you even bother. Like, what's and then the I think, I think also, isn't it that many people are afraid to hear when you, they hear you saying, Hey, stop writing yeah uh, you know and stop stop painting if you're letting stop, those other things drop stop doing stop. your little arts and crafts right if your stop life's it. falling apart stop your craftsmanship yeah god <laughs> has given you more important stuff to craft get it right first stay at the top of the eye chart and get the big e at the top right mm -hmm. first now with i mean we we the artists of the world we are the worst we just are um <laughs> And one of the things that we do collectively is that we get, you know, the dopamine we need from having done make-believe, you know, we, we go away and we do our little make-believe time and we come back with our fake stories and we use it to excuse, uh, our really crappy real stories. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, this is, this is not unique to writers. It's painters, it's filmmakers. I'm going to be a, a pretty terrible father. I'm going to be a, a really self-absorbed, just a self-absorbed, pathetic mother. Like I'm just going to be self-absorbed and pathetic because you don't understand I'm working on a novel. Gotcha. Like, no, I do understand. I do understand you're working on a novel and it's stupid. Stop it. Like, do like, do you understand where you are? Like God yeah. has given you another slab of wet concrete, like another slab of wet concrete to ride in for the day. And you just get it right. And by all means, go work on your novel, but get it right. But, be, sure. but 
Like do the character work around yourself correctly first. Relate to your kids in a beautiful way before you go try to write a, a beautiful fake story. Hmm. You know, it's like before you go try to film a, a, a really moving, like a really moving indie film that's gonna really touch people. It's like, how about you just see if you can live a moving day? Think you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> like, you think, you think you can actually live in a way that affects people? That, that touches people, that leaves awake in people's lives. Can you do that first? Um, gotcha. Like that's that's the big trap. And because we artists tend to think of ourselves as having some extra lofty calling that we are, we're creatures that just can't be understood by the other creatures. Uh, we excuse all sorts of bad behavior. Yeah. And I'm not saying that. This is important. I'm not saying that we can be understood by the other creatures because the other creatures look at us and like, why are you still writing at three in the morning? <laughs> like, why, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's like, well, this is when I do my best work and this is how I feed my family and this is how I keep a roof over their heads and, and so on. No, we're oddballs. We're total oddballs, but as oddballs, uh, overwhelmingly we're oddballs. And so some of us get up at four in the morning to do it. And some of us stay up till four in the morning to do it. And overwhelmingly, we keep odd hours and, and it's strange, but we actually have to craft the real stories more effectively. Um, and it's not to say that nobody's done beautiful work who led, a, you know, who didn't lead a, a beautiful life. Most artists who've done. I, I think we, we talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Most artists who've done beautiful work have wrecked the concrete, the wet concrete that God gave them where they're supposed to live beautiful lives. And so wouldn't it be great if that wasn't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if your kids actually liked you and you did beautiful work? But if you had to pick, you should pick the real life. Pick the kids, not the painting. Yep, absolutely. Every time. Mm. Uh, and your artistic gifts, the giftings that God has given you do not ever trump and overrule the real world relationships he's given you. Yeah. And all of us have been given real world relationships as, you know, daughters, sons, siblings, parents, spouses. So, I mean, that's kind of the, I, I, I really was, most of the questions I received were about artistic giftings. Like, yeah, and you're, just, you're saying, hey, the gift is- Use them. Use it. Use them, but don't use them uh, in a way that excuses totally ignoring yeah. the thing that God's given to all humans. Like all of us have, have these stories every day where we get to sacrifice for each other, love each other, bring joy to each other, laugh, appreciate God, live faithfully, uh, pray without ceasing, you know, and be light in the darkness. We can do that in the real world every day and write a, you know, write, fewer words in the evening. And that would be a, a, a great trade-off for most people. There, that's, there, that's it. That's your motivation. Send in, so yeah, send in, send in questions if you have them, if you want us to talk more about that. Um, I have an analogy I have, I've used with my daughters about screwing up moments. You know, just like the reality of moments to so just realize that God stations us at a, I actually, Heather, my wife has told me that I should do an episode just of the images I use with my kids. No, oh, that'd be fun. Oh, if we do, one of them will be this one. It's a, a conveyor belt of wet clay and you're supposed to make mugs. <laughs> oh yeah. You're standing at the conveyor belt and the mugs go by. 
and you just go as fast as you can trying to make a mug. The clay is going by. You're just trying going by. to go as many as you and can. And it's just okay. and there it goes. You screwed up again. And there, there. <laughs> yeah, put it's, it on. Okay. And it's gone. Like it just gone. This little hot mess is you know ruined. And there it goes. And so many of us then stare at that little wreckage of a horrible mug going by as it just leaves. And then we're all sad because we did such a terrible mug. <laughs> uh, and as a result, we then have like two or three other terrible mugs right behind it. Okay, gotcha. Because we're, we're staring. Rather we're staring, than moving to the next rather one than being like, oh, that bowl of clay. Yeah. yeah, and just being like, oh, crap. And then just getting locked in on the next one. Gotcha. We then are distracted by the wreckage we just sent down the little conveyor belt. And so it's like, and, Some of them are pretty bad, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, they are. But the worse they are, the faster we should just say goodbye and just refocus. Anyway, I'll, I can talk more at some future date about the context in which I, I use the mug conveyor belt. Well, yeah, that sounds but, good. But yeah, there's actually, I should compile a list of these, these little narrative images I've used and uh, maybe, good. maybe we'll just do an, an episode because it's micro storytelling yeah. to try to convey wisdom to the lives of your own children. Uh, anyway, today we talked about mostly just dust, follow-up dust of the last two episodes. Yep. yep. And then a little episode of Nate's, Nate's pitch improvement. Yeah. Pitch improvement. That was follow-up on, on a previous one. Yeah. Some pitch improvement. So this is a, a smorgasbord. Yeah. This is like grandmother's. It's a potluck. This is grandmother's this is sass, jello salad. Sass in which you might find carrots and raisins and, and cool whip. You just don't know. You're right. You just don't know. I hope you all enjoyed it. This has been Sasp number 78. Unvarnished. <laughs> 78. <laughs> Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire.